Avast! It's Friday and that means it's time for Pirate Wire Services. Welcome back and if you're joining us for the first time, nice to meet you. Before we get on to the news this week, I wanted to let you all know that you can now listen to us on Spotify. You can find us there as Pirate Wire Radio. The logo is the same and you should see Josh's name come up when you search. We'll include a link in the newsletter too, so make sure you follow us on there, download the episodes, share, add us to playlists, recommend us to your mates, blast us at full volume to annoy your borderline fascist neighbours, whatever really. I'd also like to ask you to do us a favour and fill out our quick readership survey. Again, the link's in our Substack newsletter. It really helps us to get a feel for who you all are and what kind of thing you'd like to see more of. Right, on to the news. Unfortunately, we're starting with a really tragic update to last week's podcast, and that is that Francisca Sandoval, the Chilean journalist who was shot in the face while covering a Labour Day march in the capital city of Santiago, has died in hospital. She fought for her life for 12 days before succumbing to her injuries on Thursday morning, staff at the hospital announced yesterday. That means we are now talking about the murder of a journalist. It's what The Guardian claims is the first time a journalist in Chile has been killed in the line of duty since the dictatorship. This is obviously really disturbing because we at Pirate Wire Services cover protests all the time in our line of work and we're painfully aware that it could have been any of us. The alleged tutor, a market vendor involved in clashes with the marches, is being held in custody. But observers are asking why the Chilean police, the carabineros, who were present at the march in full riot gear and with materials like tear gas and water cannon to hand, didn't do more to prevent this kind of lethal violence. On both a professional and a personal note, we hope this will be properly investigated. Our main story tonight is about Venezuela. Russia's war against Ukraine has prompted Western countries to scramble to move away from Russian oil and gas, partly because it looks bad to castigate the country as the new axis of evil and then buy your fuel from them, but also because they don't want Russia to be able to use it as a bargaining chip against them. In previous conflicts, Russia has threatened to cut off oil and gas to Europe. Back in March, a delegation of US diplomats and security officials visited Venezuela for talks, suggesting that the state's fears about oil supply were enough to push it to talk to the Maduro regime. That visit led to the release of two US citizens who'd been detained in Venezuela for several years. Then, in mid-April, as a US boycott on Russian oil came into force, Reuters reported that US oil companies with assets in Venezuela were pushing the Biden administration to relax its sanctions. That call was echoed by Venezuelan civil society in a letter to Biden. The move felt like the possible beginning of a sea change after years of tightening sanctions and increasingly frosty relations between Washington and Caracas. So why is this such a big deal? Well, Venezuela is home to some of the world's largest oil reserves and for a long time its economy has been based around oil exports. In recent years, the country has been undergoing a crippling economic, political and humanitarian crisis. And when we say a crisis, we mean serious business. Hyperinflation has left people's salaries worthless and shortages of basic food and medicine led to a hunger crisis so extreme that according to one study, Venezuelan adults lost an average of 11 kilos of body weight in 2017. The UN Refugee Agency estimates that 6 million Venezuelans have now left the country, putting it second only to Syria in terms of the number of people displaced. So, why the bad relations with the US? Well, in 1999, Venezuela elected Hugo Chavez, a leftist associated with Latin America's 21st century so-called pink tide of socialist leaders, 
So he was allied with presidents like Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner in Argentina, Evo Morales in Bolivia, and Lula da Silva in Brazil. These are figures who've generally been hostile towards the US and fought hard against it treating Latin America as its backyard, pushing instead for nationalization of natural resources like oil and plowing the profits into social programs for their populations. Chavez had a flamboyant personality and often needled the US. Here he is sounding off against George Bush in 2006. You are a donkey, Mr. Danger. You are a donkey. Me refiero, ustedes saben, para decirlo con todas sus letras, a Mr. Eh, George W. Bush. You are a donkey, Mr. Bush. Despite this, it's worth noting that the US was still a major buyer of Venezuelan oil at this point, and companies like Chevron still have assets in Venezuela today. Chavez died in 2013 and was replaced by his ally Nicolas Maduro. A year later, the price of oil crashed hard, dropping from over $100 a barrel in 2014 to just $28 a barrel in early 2016. As Venezuela's economy took the hit, civil unrest grew. In 2017, over 120 people were killed in protests and over 1,000 were wounded, according to official data. Amnesty International highlighted problems including excessive use of force by the security forces, arbitrary arrests and detentions, and even torture. The US has long had some form of sanctions in place against Venezuela. During the Obama administration, these were generally limited to specific individuals, but Trump expanded them dramatically in a bid to force Maduro out of power, including a sweeping 2019 embargo against the country's huge oil sector. That came after Maduro was controversially re-elected in 2018 presidential elections, which were widely believed to be fraudulent. Things came to a head in January 2019, when Juan Guaidó, leader of the opposition, claimed that by law, the presidency should go to him. He was immediately recognized by a number of Western and Latin American countries, while several others continued to back Maduro, leading to a dual presidency crisis that technically continues today. This explains why Venezuela has become a geopolitical flashpoint. While Maduro's Venezuela is broadly regarded as a dictatorship, where abuse of civil rights and liberties is rife, some sectors of the left argue that Maduro is the legitimately elected leader, that problems such as food shortages and rights violations are being exaggerated or even invented to further US interests, and that calls for him to step down a little more than a coup attempt. In October 2021, a UN report found that the sanctions in Venezuela had, and I quote, exacerbated the pre-existing economic and social crisis, and had a devastating effect on the entire population, especially those living in poverty, women, children, older persons, persons with disabilities or life-threatening or chronic diseases, and the indigenous population, leaving no strata of society untouched. The rapporteur said that the sanctions were undermining human rights, democracy and the rule of law, the very principles they claimed to push for and should be lifted. All this makes it easy to see why the prospect of the US softening its stance towards Venezuela is such a big deal. But beyond business and economics, I think it's super important to think about what this means for the rights of everyday Venezuelans. With that in mind, I'd like to introduce the first of our two guests, Jeff Ramsey, director of the Venezuela program at the Washington office on Latin America, also known as WOLA. Do these recent overtures towards Venezuela by the Biden administration represent a thawing in relations and a different track from Trump, or is this purely about what's most convenient for the states? 
Yeah, well, it's a great question. First, I think it's important to put this, uh, you know, for the recent movement in perspective. The the way that the visit from several high-level Biden administration officials to Caracas in March has been reported is as if the Biden administration is simply looking to uh, undo the the last several years of U.S. policy towards Venezuela and to replace. Uh, some of the crude oil that it's getting from Russia with Venezuelan oil. I think the energy uh, needs of the U.S. are certainly part of the equation here, but I'm not convinced that the Biden administration is fully abandoning its position on the need to push for uh, a democratic transition in Venezuela, and in particular with regard to uh, the importance of seeking uh, political agreements that can lead to free and fair presidential elections in the next several years. The message from the Biden administration, you know, they say that uh, the position remains essentially the same, that there isn't going to be any kind of sanctions relief, uh, any kind of thawing of trade relations, particularly with with the Venezuelan oil sector, uh, unless it comes in the context of negotiations between the Maduro regime uh, and representatives of the opposition. Uh, We we saw negotiations that started in the middle of last year. Maduro actually pulled away from the table in those negotiations after the extradition of uh, a, a government ally to the United States. And you know, it does seem like with this recent visit, the, the strategy has been to find ways to incentivize the uh, de facto Maduro government to return to the negotiating table. How would it affect Venezuela's socioeconomic situation if they started selling oil to the states again? Is that something that Venezuela would be interested in? Yeah, so, you know, I, the reality is that Venezuela has... Uh, an oil economy. They have an economy that's that's very much centered around oil exports. You know, and and, and we've seen this. I mean, as the uh, the country's oil sector began to, for lack of a better word, fall apart due to mismanagement and a lack of investment that began well before the imposition of U.S. sectoral sanctions in 2017, you started to see a decline in imports. Uh, that's because oil oil sales, the, the revenue from oil sales accounts for you know the, the, the vast majority of uh, hard currency that's used to pay for imports. Yeah, that brings me on to the next question, really, which is that the crisis in Venezuela, it's not just economic, it's also political. So there are widespread reports of government involvement in corruption, violent organised crime, persecution of dissidents, journalists and other critical voices. So what other factors should we take into account if we really want to understand people's living conditions there? Yeah, well, that's an important point. I mean, Venezuela, uh, for the longest time throughout much of the 20th century, was a relatively successful, uh, robust democracy. However, over the last 20 years, uh, you know, we've seen that democracy essentially descend into authoritarianism. What began as a, a political movement with former President Hugo Chavez at its head, leading sort of a, an expression of popular discontent against a political and economic elite that was perceived as out of touch with the population. That same movement essentially uh, has become yet another uh, elite that is removed from the economic reality of the country and that has uh, dismantled essentially every democratic institution in the country. 
And finally, I wanted to ask, we've heard some reports that living conditions in Venezuela are perhaps starting to improve. We're hearing that there's been a de facto dollarization in many parts of society and that now goods are appearing on the shelves again, but they're extremely expensive. Can you tell me a bit more about that and what it means for the everyday population? Yeah, so it's true. You know, as a result of U.S. sanctions and the fact that the state essentially was forced to to liberalize, uh, to essentially hand over large sectors of the economy that were primarily controlled by, by the state over to private entities, uh, there has been uh, an increase in in, in productivity in the in in the country, or at least uh, the, the economy started to grow again. You know, some economists claim that the the GDP in Venezuela might grow by as much as ten uh, percent this year or more. That's 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 certainly significant, but it needs to be put into context. The reality is that for the last six or seven years, the Venezuelan economy has contracted by around eighty uh, percent. So you know, yes, the economy is starting to grow again. But it's a, it's a drop in the bucket compared to the size of the Venezuelan economy uh, before the current economic crisis. So, yeah, it is true. There are signs of uh, some economic growth. But the reality is that in order for uh, the, the, the country's economic prospects to, to completely recover, we are going to need to see some kind of political agreements that can establish or that can restore the country's democratic institutions, uh, and that could lead to credible, viable sanctions relief in the medium term. And we aren't going to see that unless there are uh, some kind of uh, meaningful agreements that come out of negotiations between the Maduro government and the democratic opposition. How likely do you think that is? I am moderately optimistic. If you had asked me a couple weeks ago, I would have been more pessimistic. But, you know, it does seem like the international community is increasingly uh, aligned around the need to use existing pressure uh, to to incentivize meaningful negotiations. Uh, and I think the, the Venezuelan opposition, which is not- notoriously divided, uh, is increasingly uh, 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 united, at least around the, the importance of uh, of negotiations. So I think we're likely to see some form of negotiations uh, in the coming weeks and months. Uh, of course, their success will depend on uh, how how willing the Maduro government is to make concessions. And there, unfortunately, I'm not very optimistic that the Maduro government has unfortunately been a serial abuser of negotiations and dialogue processes in the past. I think it's important to remember that no no ruler rules alone. Maluro obviously faces little incentive to give up power. I mean, any any ruler faces little incentive to give up power. But the fact is, he depends on a set of political, economic, and military elites to maintain that power. And so the question is, what do they want? Uh, what kind of incentives? Do the people in Maduro's inner circle face uh, with regard to uh, their political and legal future? 
Uh, and so there, I think you, you do have some interesting questions. For instance, what kind of pressure do uh, economic elites in Venezuela that uh, would like to see some kind of more meaningful economic recovery, what kind of pressure are they putting on Maduro uh, to engage in negotiations uh, in a credible and, and productive way? What kind of pressure uh, internally might be uh, brought to bear on Maduro from military higher-ups and from members of his own political coalition, from actors in Chavismo that would like to see a political future uh, for themselves. So again, I, I think it's important. Yes, the ideology of this is important. Of course, there there are Maduro and other actors in his coalition who may face uh, little incentive to 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 advance incredible negotiations, uh, but there may well be others in his uh, inner circle. Who, who may be working in a different direction. Uh, and, you know, ultimately, that's how we've seen democratic transitions take place in, uh, you know, throughout the, the, the 20th and even 21st century in, in Latin America and, and elsewhere. Our next guest is Manuel Cacique Herrera, a doctoral researcher at the University of Quilmes in Argentina, focusing on ground rent from Venezuelan oil. He's part of a research group on commodities and political economy in Latin America, led by Juan Kornblit. I've heard Juan present his work before, and it's super interesting, so we'll link to that in the newsletter too. Oil ground rent corresponds in Venezuela to around 53% of Venezuelan GDP. And this is an average. It can reach even beyond 80% of GDP. So... But when you look at the productivity of labor of Venezuelan working class is in average around 5% of the productivity of labor of USA workers. So Venezuela have a very low uh, productivity of labor. In 2014, a huge crisis of overproduction in the oil sector strike and the prices of oil came down without oil rain these capitals cannot have a profitability that allow them to continue to, to perform as capitals. That is the crisis. Okay, so you would associate it more with the 2014 oil price crash then? Of course, because it's a, it's the whole industry is highly dependent on the amount of rent that the state can transfers from the oil sector to other sectors of the industry in Venezuela. Other sectors that, as we uh, said before, have only a 20th of the productivity of labor of a normal capital, of a normal operating capital. Why they are not erased from competition? Because they have this compensation that is oil ground rent. A lot of the coverage in the major media is treating this as an economic and international relations issue, but I think it's really important to look at this as a human rights and humanitarian issue too. So to what extent would it actually improve the conditions of everyday Venezuelans if the country started exporting its oil again? Let's try to compare this situation with other countries that have been historically sanctioned by the U.S., there is no evidence that any of the countries sanctioned by the U.S. have changed in, uh, in their political views or political, political stance because of the sanctions of the U.S. This has never happened. 
And the sanctions mainly affect the population. They really not affect the, the government. So if we look uh, at it from a humanitarian, from a, a human rights perspective, of course we need to remove the sanctions because the sanctions are not doing the job that the US government say it will do. They are just hurting Venezuelan population. Can you give us some examples of how these sanctions hurt the population? First and foremost, Venezuela is a country which relies exclusively from oil revenue. And this oil ground rent support all of the capitals and operate in Venezuela, but these capitals doesn't exist like in Astrak, in the air. These capitals have jobs position. This capital is the way that the major part of Venezuelan population reproduce their life. So the destruction of these capitals is the destruction of the working class that put into motion labor for this capital. If you can sell oil, then the population has no way of reproducing their life. So they have to, to migrate. And then there is the other stuff that you can import by, if you don't have the money, you can like import all the goods that this population needs. Present of the sanction of the sanction themselves just make the government a certain self in power and put them in a kind of, of the place of the victim of an assault on the USA. And they use that as an excuse to continue the, this process of, of destroying wages, of destroying the health sector, of destroying the educational system of Venezuela. Directly or indirectly, the sanctions drop down and affect only the population of Venezuela. These people are rich. These people that govern Venezuela, they are all rich. They have money. They have money in, in in their pockets. They can move it around. All right, you, the US want to take their money, but someone else will, because that's how capitalism works. To what extent can people exercise civil liberties like the right to protest, the right to freedom of speech, and the right to political organization in Venezuela at the moment? Well, at the moment, it's very precarious. The current situation of freedom of speech in general, and the current situation of free association and political organization. Syndicalization is banned de facto. Union leaders have been persecuted from quite some time now. One of the lead, uh, of union leaders, that is Rodney Alvarez, was in prison for 11 years without a trial. He came out of prison a month ago. Wow. And, and he had to pay without a trial 11 years in a Venezuelan prison, arguably one of the most scary and dehumanizing places of all Latin America. And that is to say a lot. What's the situation like for freedom of speech and journalists who criticize Maduro? It's precarious in general. There have been people that, that has been in prison for tweeting some things. In the pandemic, some journalists that were concerned by the current situation of the health sector in Venezuela were imprisoned for publicly manifesting this concern. You're like an open target for these accusations. Yeah. 
And do you think that what's on the table now is in a possible situation where relations with the states calm down or start to thaw a bit? Do you think that a move towards normalization of relations with other countries could improve also the situation in terms of human rights and freedom of speech in Venezuela? Well, relatively, yes. It's obvious that if the sanctions are removed from the pictures, some, uh, some money will start flowing through Venezuelan capitals and, and this imply that some level of negotiation by, by Chavism and Maduro government with those capitals in general, and that implies also the working class in Venezuela. But this would be a very mild improvement. That's, this would be a very mild improvement because the level of destruction of Venezuela in general and the social conditions in general are pretty big. It's like if you would ask me if this would improve the economy of Venezuela, well, relatively, yes, of course, is it would be better than the situation that we have now. But that doesn't mean that Venezuela will flourish into a wealthy country. It would help people to have more access to some commodities, some goods and services. It would help the people to have maybe more money in their packet that is urgently needed from uh, for for Venezuela population, but the whole apparatus that the state once provide to Venezuela population have been been destroyed, and it will take much more than simply removing all sanctions to reconstruct even a slight portion of what was destroyed. As both Jeff and Manuel have said, there's clearly a lot at stake with these talks. Sadly, even if things pick up, Venezuela will need many years to recover from the current crisis, so we need to be realistic about what a thawing of relations with the US could achieve. But it's a really important topic to follow, so we'll provide updates as and when we get them here at Pirate Wire Services. You've been listening to the Pirate Wire Services podcast. You can sign up to our newsletter at piratewireservices.substack.com Follow us on Twitter at pirate underscore wire and now listen to us on Spotify at Pirate Wire Radio. If you like our work, please consider taking a paid subscription. That allows us to invest proper time and energy in developing in-depth, high-quality, independent journalism about Latin America. Until next week, ciao piratas!